City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, play script, director. pleasure to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street, the heart of the theatre, the heart of Broadway, and the heart of the beat that is the magic of live theatre. It is here that Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come to share the wealth of theatre. The American Theatre Wing is known for its Tony Awards, and justly so. We are very proud of this award. It is given annually, not for the longest run or the best box office, but for having achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of theatre. And that really is at the crux of everything that the American Theatre Wing does. We look for excellence in the theatre, and we eventually try to bring that excellence to our year-round programs. We go to hospitals, nursing centers, and aid centers, and we bring live theater so that those who cannot come out to the theater have it brought to them. We have a program called Introduction to Broadway, and it is just that. It introduces the excitement and the magic of Broadway to young students from the high schools of the five boroughs, and it is done in cooperation with the Board of Education, and the generosity of the producers. It is the student's very first time, in many cases, not only of going to the theater, but of going out of their neighborhoods so that they see that there is another area for them. And then we also have a program that is called Theater in Schools, and we bring directors and playwrights and performers and costume designers to the schools to discuss the theater what goes on in the theater, how you work in the theater, and that you needn't be a, a, a performer or a dancer. You can do lighting and you can do costumes and you can be in the theater. It's a wonderful world and we are opening their imagination to it and we're hoping that we are giving them role models as well as developing the audience of the future. And then these seminars, they're one of the, I think, most interesting, exciting, and unique programs that anyone can have. And each year, twice a year, we bring together the people that make the theater work. They're designed to give you an in-depth look of what it is to work in the theater. From the viewpoint of the performer, of the director playwright, and the costume designer, and the very last and most important the people that bring it all together, the producers. And so we come to this program, which is on the production, and the wonderful production of Love, Valor, and Compassion, which is on Broadway right now, 
and we have the producing team that brought it from Manhattan Theatre Club to Broadway, and they in turn will try to take you along the trip with them. On our program today is Brendan Gill, who is co-chairing. Brendan is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, author, critic, George White, who is president of the O'Neill Theatre Center, director, teacher, and great friend of the theatre and the wing. They, in turn, will introduce this distinguished panel to you. Thank you for being here. On my far right is Joe Mantello, threatens to be the most celebrated young director of his time, and a member of the Circle Rep and of Naked Angels. Next to Joe is Victoria Bailey, the general manager of the Manhattan Theatre Club, and on my near right is Barry Grove, managing director of the Manhattan Theatre Club. Um, on my far left, downstage left, not so far, actually, um, is Helene Davis, who is the press representative for the Manhattan Theatre Club. Uh, next to her is Terence McNally, the uh, playwright of Love, Valor, Compassion, uh, who is also a playwright of A Perfect Ganesh, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, Lisbon Traviata, and uh, Vice President of the Dramatists Guild. And immediately on my left is uh, Lynn Meadow, who, is, uh, who has been the artistic director of the Manhattan Theatre Club since she was about three, um, <laughs> uh, and has produced and directed uh, over 100 American um, and uh, world premieres. Very distinguished. Uh, we're talking about the whole production and how it is brought uh, into the theatre as a whole. And so I'm, I would love to ask, as the first question of, of Terence and all of them together, uh, the question of how everybody felt about the title. Uh, Terence makes difficulties with his titles. Ganesh was a very mysterious word to see in print anywhere. And then to have these three words uh, have, has proved, proved difficult uh, for some people that I know to keep them in order and not to insert connectives of various kinds to turn it into a sentence. Now, when you first said to everybody, have I got a title, Love, Valor, <laughs> Compassion, what did everybody say? Oh. <laughs> well, first I had to say the title very distinctly. I'd go, Love, Pause, Valor, <laughs> Compassion. That didn't stop it from very soon being referred to as Love, Velour, Compassion. <laughs> it was very distressing to me, my play about the garment industry. <laughs> um, no one said I couldn't, no one said it was bad, uh, but I didn't feel anyone liked it. But I liked it, and I, I know why I chose it. Uh, many years ago, uh, four or five years ago, when the New Yorker, your magazine, was running uh, the Achiever uh, Journals, he had an entry in his journal about he came across a man in the woods yelling, love, valor, compassion, just screaming it out, heard this voice, and I just jotted the phrase down, and it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. The second reason I wanted to use that title was... I thought it would raise the stakes for me as a writer. This is very personal. But if you call a play Love, Valor, Compassion with exclamation points, you better write the best play you can. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons I chose it. That's uh, a thrilling reason. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a good reason. But it's very personal. Oh, and I oh, don't yeah, usually but, tell uh, people that. But. No, but that, that is. But, and and also, uh, but starting back, too, because that, that is, I agree with Brendan, um, You've had a long association, obviously, with the Manhattan Theatre Club, which is really the premier place for developing work, I think, now uh, going on to, to moving it into New York. Um, how did you 
first of all, you've had so many plays with them, you've almost become, or are, in effect, something that is rare in this uh, society, almost a, the nearest thing we have, I think, to a resident playwright. Mm -hmm. um, how did that all start? Well, um, maybe ten years ago, uh, I had a play close in Philadelphia. It was called It's Only a Play. At the time, it was called Broadway, Broadway. And I was very discouraged. Uh, I don't know. I thought having a play close in Philadelphia was the most shameful thing a human being could do, <laughs> such as my <laughs> ego. And uh, <laughs> at any rate, there was a director, uh, John Tillinger, who saw the play and said, you know, if you ever rewrite that play, I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. I'd like to do it. And I know this place called Manhattan Theatre Club. I'd actually worked with them ten years before that with Bad Habits. Uh, when the, before they That's the name of a play. Bad Habits, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they worked on my bad habits. And uh, so I, that's the simplest way of putting it. Uh, they, we, I rewrote the play. I got my self-confidence as a playwright back, which is a terrible thing to lose, and went the Philadelphia experience, which is exactly what it had done to me. And during a preview of... Um, it's only a play. Uh, Lynn said to me, we want to produce your next play. She didn't say, send us your next play. She said, we will produce your next play. And it was about December 21st, I think, and I said, that's the best Christmas present I will ever receive. And it's still true eight, eight years later, because in the past, no, it's 10 years now I've, we've been doing plays at the new location. We've done eight plays in 10 years, and mm -hmm. uh, their commitment to me has been unwavering. And I wish more producers would make the same commitment to an American playwright, because there are a lot of good playwrights out there. They don't have a home. They are forced to take their plays and beg uh, producers to do their work. And I think uh, Love, Valor, Compassion talks about unconditional love, and that's what some more American playwrights need a lot of, and I have it, and I'm very lucky. I'm not the only one. They've made an enormous commitment to Richard Greenberg, mm -hmm. to Beth Henley. There are several other playwrights. Pete Gurney. So I'm not the only one. Uh, but without the support of Manhattan Theatre Club, it's not support, it's unconditional love support. I would not be sitting here today with some of the plays. Because that en enables me to write a play called Love, Valor, Compassion, because they're going to produce it. They're not going to produce a play that they think will be a bigger hit than the last one I wrote. And uh, that's allowed my work, I think, not to repeat itself, and I hope I haven't, and I try not to, but I, it's such a team effort putting a play on, and I think playwrights get much too much praise when we when we do our work halfway well, and without the right background, the fertile soil, none of this would have happened, and uh, I, it's just so important, and I'm not being overly generous, I'm being very, re I'm telling you what it's really like to be a playwright. Most playwrights are unsupported by the theater community. You know, give us a hit and we'll do it. Uh, show us that your play is bigger and better and better than this, uh, the other guy's play. Maybe we'll do it. They're not saying to the playwrights, we'll do your play because we believe in you as a developing artist. And, and there that's was so a tradition important. in the past, going all the way back, God knows, to Shakespeare, where you had a company, a where, company. where you had back support all the way through. And, and so you're describing something. I was about to say that it has the sound of a family, but the family is in such disgrace nowadays <laughs> that that's become a pejorative this term. Is not I don't a, say family. This but is it's almost family. This is not a dysfunctional family. No, I think it is a family. And people say to me, why do you write for the same actors over and over? Because they're wonderful actors. And I'm very lucky mm -hmm. that people like Nathan Lane and Tony Heald want to be in my plays. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what Shakespeare and Chekhov and Moliere. Playwrights traditionally have had actors to write for, and suddenly this 
business that you do a play and you never see the people ever again, oh, I, I just don't want to work that way. Mm -hmm. Nathan and I work in shorthand, uh, you know. It's great because we've done five plays together. It's now, is that wonderful. also a reason that you are so wonderfully uh, fruitful, so productive because you have this? Because how many plays have you done now? You've done a lot. I, I, don't, I know I've done ten at MTC. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many. But My pre-MTC life. How did it all begin to gel into Manhattan Theatre Club? How well, that, yeah, I was going to, because I, I, I have a little background with it, but I wanted to talk to, to the mom here. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep this family <laughs> metaphor. Yes, yeah. yeah, a three-year-old mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, uh, it, you might give us, because it, it did, it, Manhattan Theatre Club is kind of, it is a unique institution, and, and, and on its way to Broadway, if you will, uh, has a kind of evolution of, of faith, and uh, that the same thing that you have, Terrence, you know, having experienced that. But Lynn, give us a little history, and then also picking up on, on where you got the idea for this kind of commitment to writing. But bring us back into the I, I think time. <clears throat> our commitment to writers is part of the fabric of the theater that Barry and I have uh, worked it for 20 years. Uh, the, the initial idea of this theater was to support writers and to do new work. Um, and in, I think the, it was the very first season of work, at which you remember, George, we had an event called the New York Theater Strategy Festival in which we did 23 plays by new writers in every room, every bathroom, every <laughs> upstairs and downstairs basement. and. In a way, that was um, laying the groundwork in a very primitive way for what was to be a lifelong commitment on all of our parts. And and as the theater has grown, you also almost you got thrown out of your first place. That's right, we did. That was uh, we, not not because of the New York Theater Strategy no, Festival. No, no. <laughs> we lasted we lasted for a while, but then, uh, as, as Barry will tell you, that we ran into real estate problems and. You know them well, and we moved uh, to our new home at City Center ten years ago. Now, how was that done? How, well, how did you get the space? What, whom did you? We, we had this early uh, space on 73rd Street. It, we, the theater began there, and this ramshackle brownstone that, that Lynn described earlier. And suddenly, we became one of the earliest victims of what is now a common occurrence of sort of the arts crisis in real estate, as, as prices rose rapidly in New York. And we began to look everywhere. And one of the people we went to see was Jerry Schoenfeld of the Schubert Organization, who, who directed us over towards city center. We certainly knew the large space upstairs, but downstairs was a, was a wide open basement that had little going on in it at the time. And um, with the help of the city of New York, um, the Public Development Corporation, we were able to construct two off-Broadway-sized theaters. And with the blessing of the unions, because those theaters exist inside the Broadway district, as it were, um, we were able to create a permanent home there. Mm -hmm. um, since then, we've sort of grown by leaps and bounds, so we're not only producing there, we're producing in a host of other places. Richard Greenberg's play has now uh, just begun at American Place, and a number of other uh, venues are involved. And of course, we're now at the Walter Kerr with Love, Valor, Compassion. But City Center, I, I think, became the home for all of mm -hmm. this activity. I think the point I, I just add as well is the commitment is not just from all of us to the artists. The commitment's really from the audience to the artists. We have some 18,000 subscribers. I'll come back to your original question. It doesn't matter what the play is called to that audience. I mean, they really are committed to seeing Terrence's body of work just as we're committed to produce. How does that subscription work now that you're on Broadway? How does that subscription Do you honor all of your subscribers on Broadway? All of them had originally seen the play in right. the first 12 weeks of the run at City Center. 
But what did happen is that we had extended the play at City Center for three or four weeks while we were still figuring out what would next happen. And in the course of making the decision to go to um, the Walter Kerr, moved some of the single ticket buyers over to the Walter Kerr. Mm -hmm. that, that that's a beautiful theater. It is. Yes, it wonderful is. theater. Now, can you get a kind of franchise on that theater to, in the future? <laughs> well, it's an, exci yeah, yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. exciting yeah. idea. It's an exciting idea. Absolutely. But, but that Fine. would be wonderful to have I want to go stadium. back to what is the reason for having gone to Broadway? That's right. I was going to ask whether... Who All right, I asked it first. Okay. You got me. <laughs> well, I think, I think there are a lot of different answers around the table, but clearly this play is exceptional. Um, I can say that because I didn't write it and I didn't direct it. It, it has resonated with audiences uh, of all kinds, uh, young, old, straight, gay, suburban, mm -hmm. city. The response at City Center was phenomenal to the play, and, and the response really dictated a need for a much bigger space. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wanted to see it. We sold out very quickly at City Center in the first 12 week run and uh, at the same time obviously the economics of Broadway are daunting so the challenge became trying to find a way to make that work. Did you, how did you add to your producing team for Broadway? Uh, the one major addition really mm -hmm. other than that it's the Manhattan Theater Club is that we uh, went to the Jujamson organization mm -hmm. and Rocco Landisman very graciously not only gave us the uh, Walter Kerr Theater but made a non-recourse loan to the Manhattan Theater Club so we continue to be the sole producers of the play but they provided some enormous help in terms of financing. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive to move. It is the team. Yeah. You're, you know, Helene, mm -hmm. uh, Victoria Bailey, Michael Bush, who is not here now, um, who's the Associate Artistic Director of the theater, and very instrumental in bringing this uh, production to life. Um, this, is, this is the team and the staff. Well, let's talk about also um, the choice of director, because you yourself are a consummate director. Mm -hmm. How does that come about? Who decides? Obviously, you decide, but why? Yes, but well, in this case, um, I, I think Terrence mentioned to us that he was very interested in a young director, Joe Mantello, mm -hmm. and Michael Bush had a meeting with Joe, and I remember I was not present at the meeting, but Michael called me after the meeting and said, "This guy really mm -hmm. knows how to do this play." He said the first thing he said is, "There's got to be a house. There has to be a house. The first thing that you see is a house." And Michael said he exuded such a feeling of confidence and belief and conviction and love of this play. And Terrence met with him, obviously, felt very strongly about him. And I think, uh, speaking as an outsider, um, I would say it was love at first sight. <laughs> what was your, your reaction? I, I don't remember being very confident. But, uh, <laughs> well, you were a great actor. Yeah, well, <laughs> in addition to being a great director. It's a very strange sort of relationship uh, to form that kind of relationship when you don't really know each other. It's, I, I, I've described it a little bit as sort of you know, it's like going on a blind date and you're going to be married the next day. So you kind of... It's very, very hard. And, and how do you talk about... Um, how do you talk about y your entire vision of a play and if, if that's even possible without, you know, excluding what happens in the room, but, and to sort of, uh, but I think I just sort of said I really love the play. I think it would be fun. I'm, as I remember, I don't remember saying I, anything yeah, you know, terribly insightful. You did say, I know how to do this play. I know <laughs> how to that's fairly really confident. <laughs> and, and, and if I'm going to get into a plane, I, I want to hear the pilot say, <laughs> I know how to get this plane to L.A. Not, I think I can maybe get it. You were very confident, and you said it would be fun to do this play, and you also said you love the play. And the image Lynn spoke about is so important. The first stage direction of the script says a bare stage. 
Now, that, what does that mean? It means I don't want a lot of scenery. But Joe said, I think we need a model of the house to locate for the audience where this bare stage is going to turn into all sorts of different things in the next three hours. But we need some point of reference at the very beginning. That was Joe's idea, and that's we all saw. How did you know about smart. Joe Mantella, actor as director? Well, we, he had directed three hotels. Yes. That we, we knew about. Fat Men in Skirts. That we, and, I hadn't seen. And Imagining Brad, a wonderful play oh, right. at Circle Rep. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that I'd seen many, four years before, and I thought was the best new American playwright. And uh, Peter Hedges. And, uh, you know, the play was not a big hit, but I thought, what a wonderful playwright and what a wonderful director. And I, you know, I file all this away. I go to the theater a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't wait till they become Joe Mantello. I find them when they're Joe Mantello. <laughs> I think that's also interesting just um, to, to point out, if we're talking about a process here, is that someone saying, I know how to do a play, it's, it's not obvious, having Terrence's play, it was not obvious how to do the play, nor with any play, but in, in particular, this play could have been done a million different ways. And, mm -hmm. and it's only if you had seen it done badly would you know, in addition, how great Joe's work on the piece was, mm -hmm. I think. Where did the stage designer come in? We, now, you and Joe have got together. Mm -hmm. Joe said, we have to have the house, we have to have the model. So the stage designer is well, we, already in the picture. Uh, we both realized the choice of designer was very important, more important perhaps in this play than, say, uh, Lips Together, which is a more, quote, realistic set. And Joe uh, suggested Loy Arsenas, who's someone whose work I'd admired. Then they went off and worked together and developed a design. It ended up being a very simple design concept, but that's, Joe can speak of, of that, because uh, I was not at those meetings until they had a chance to do their first draft. Loy and I um, have worked together uh, since, since I started directing down at Circle Rep. Tanya Berezin sort of put us together, and so, um, you know, again, like, like Terrence and Nathan, there's, there's such shorthand there. And, uh, um, I thought that his sensibility, you know, it, it was absolutely perfect for this play because it's it's so spare and so elegant, and and and, and there's a kind of a painterly quality to his work that I thought would uh, where the play would just sit nicely, and we just would have a series of meetings, um, always coming back to um, what is essential, what is es essential for the storytelling. Uh, we didn't want a lot of moving parts. I really just wanted it. I felt like it needed to just be the actors uh, coming together to tell the story and, and to get out of the way of the play so that, it, so that there was a playful quality to it and a kind of a homemade, um, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, but, but I, didn't, I didn't think that there should be beds and, I, you know, I didn't want to see a lot of the house. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the other method also works where if you want a beach house on Fire Island, you can have one that looks as if you want to move into it tomorrow. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fantastic. I, I don't think this play you could design that way. Uh, I don't think, it, it would, Joe, there's a reason you write bare stage, and what you really mean is you don't want beds and turn. Some uh, uh, people who read the play said, well, you're going to need at least three turntables and an mm -hmm. elevator. Yeah. And I said, no, <laughs> I know. I said, no, I don't want that. I wouldn't have written bare stage. And they said, well, how are you going to do all this? I said, I'm going to find the director and designer who know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm not a... Playwrights don't have to design their own sets, <laughs> but they have a sensibility, and you find the people who share that sensibility and solve the problems together. Uh, the same is with casting. Uh, I didn't write this play with a lot of people in mind. Everyone said, oh, well, you wrote such a great part for Nathan Lane. Nathan was never intended to be in this play. Uh, mm -hmm. It just, 
Neil Simon's short run became our good fortune, and mm-hmm. Nathan was free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's ironic that people think I wrote that part for Nathan. And mm-hmm. Hello, one Nathan. Of the few parts I have it yeah. before. Nathan. I was going to say he has a tradition with he's another part right. of the family. But I didn't write this for him. But he could step in. Where does the rest of the family come in? Can we? It's Tori. What do you do? Well, I'm I'm the general manager, so I kind of uh, I'm charged with the day-to-day responsibilities, along Which is? with uh, contracts, budgets. I work with Michael Bush, with Michael Moody, our production manager, Helene. We really do work together. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that's somewhat unusual about how we produce is is we do work as a team, which isn't always the most efficient way, but we get it done, I think, relatively quickly. And so I really, I, I, I we have a. At MTC, we pretty much let people go into rehearsal and we leave them alone for a period of time. So I'm much more concerned with are we on budget, how's it going in the shop, that sort of thing in the preliminary phase um, until we get into the theater. Well, how about into the run now? Uh, uh, now do do it's now? day to day. I'm on top of, Helene, all of us, but I mean, I'm on top of keeping on track of the weekly operating expenses. We work on the media plan and the advertising and the promotion, you know, looking at, at sales. Um, thinking down the road as long as kind of day to day trying to keep tabs on the company and make sure everybody's happy and and that we're running as smoothly as we can. So you really are. I mean, you're, you're managing we, generally. Which yes, is, it's <laughs> absolutely, right, absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, well, that brings up uh, Helene. Um, you've got a hit. Uh, you're open. Uh, uh, let's first of all, how do you plan everything from? Uh, I, I assume that you're responsible from everything from the artwork. Mm-hmm. Over, overseeing that, which yes. I'd like to talk about how how, how that process goes right. through, right on to um, yeah, obviously opening. You've got the good reviews. Now what? And how do you keep the ball in the air? Because so that people don't forget, or they say, or people coming in and say, "Oh, that's the play I want to go see." Right. What? Tell me how you do. Well, that. you put together kind of a package of press and outreach, marketing, outreach, advertising, um, group sales direct mail flyers and press stories on various on everybody involved in the play the actors that's keeping it going keeping it going How, where where do you to where do you reach out how do you find the places you reach out well we look at each play individually in, in this case um, we had a phenomenal word of mouth from our subscribed city center run um, to help us it really gave us a boost to go on broadway we had um, people that we were turning away nightly at City Center, so we, we had that to build on. Um, we did a great deal of direct mail um, to people who had seen Terrence's plays at Manhattan Theatre Club. We have lists of people. Um, we, did, we, we took on um, some consultants, and uh, our advertising agency worked with us to do outreach into the gay community, advertising, direct mail, um, press, and marketing to them. Um, but to really a broad, because the play is, has really reached a broad, it's not a, it's not a gay play and it's not just for a gay audience. So we, we really have done a very broad campaign. Um, How about the uh, planning in the beginning when, you, when, you, when everybody decided, okay, you're going to go to Broadway? Because mm-hmm. with, within the Manha- Manhattan Theatre Club, obviously you've got your subscribers and you, you say to people, so what, when, when let's say the, the team says, okay, Helene, we're going to go to Broadway, now what do you do? And who do you go to? Where do you? I mean, track us through that. Take a deep breath. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to Broadway. Uh, We were fortunate to bring in um, Ben Mordecai as a marketing consultant who had done Angels in America and the Piano Lesson to come in and and advise us and and work with us. And 
with Ben's help and with all our help, um, we put together, I think, a really comprehensive marketing plan. We knew that if we mailed out, our lists are, are really some of the best in the city, I think. And uh, we did a, quite a lot of direct mail and very targeted, specific direct mail um, that we knew we could approximate what the return would be and what ticket sales would be generated from it. Um, and that really gave us a base for the first few weeks until we reopened and had that second push of publicity that you get from, a, from another opening. Talk to the nitty-gritty. Um, what was the changes that you made in your budget from Manhattan Theatre Club to the Broadway Theatre? Let, let me jump in for a All right. um, and, and take a step back. This play is being done at a Broadway Alliance, which is an important element. I think Could you, you explain that? Inject here. Um, the Broadway Alliance um, is an organization consortium of all of the unions on Broadway and the League of American Theaters and Producers. Jane Sloten's uh, the director of that program. And it has attempted to bring people together to try and reduce costs, reduce ticket prices, and make Broadway an affordable place for straight plays. Um, they had done a phenomenal amount of work in this effort before we got there. But at the same time, the first, I think, four projects had not managed to succeed economically. Um, and I felt strongly that the Broadway Alliance could work, and it could work for this play. And when we began to talk, the artists felt as powerfully about it as we did, that Broadway should not be a place we walk away from for straight plays. Clearly, it's still very effective economically for musicals, but it's gotten to be a very difficult home for straight plays in, in any uh, long run. Um, and so we began to really move towards that idea. Now, that idea puts a cap on spending. Mm -hmm. the, the original cap, I think, was in the $600,000 range, and it put a, a cap on ticket prices that was sort of $35. And as we looked at that, we thought, well, gee, we're close to that, but we're not really there. So what if we asked for some concessions to that plan to try and retailer it to really, to, to really make it work? And that involved uh, looking at what the ticket prices were already off-Broadway. In this case, I felt strongly that that was the, the minimum we, we could sort of go to, and, and that was $45. So we asked that the ticket price be lifted to $45. Um, we also felt that even with a success, it, it's too easy, I think, in our business to sit back and say, play didn't work as a Broadway Alliance production because it wasn't a good play. Or conversely, Love, Valor, Compassion works because it's a great play in and of itself. Obviously, you have to have that in the beginning. But it, it's now imperative that we have the ability to control costs and drive mm -hmm. uh, the marketing agenda to help to bring the message out to people. So in effect, what's going on between these two is every dollar Tory is able to save in labor costs or in house costs is a dollar Helene can spend in marketing. That's a critical equation. I, I, I wanted to find one this morning, but I, didn't, I couldn't find one of those little child's toy puzzles where you sort of slide the squares around in a very small box. And I think it's a good metaphor for trying to produce on Broadway under the Broadway Alliance because the constraints of that plan are very tight. Now, is that where Rocco came in and made arrangements with the Walter Kerr, or is that... He agreed to go forward under that plan, and, and the theater owners have been generous in that regard, because not only do the artists involved work for reduced costs, but the theater owner waves rent. Who did you go to to get permission to raise the ticket price to the 45? To the Alliance Board, uh, to the Broadway Alliance Board. Uh -huh. and we went, and 
presented the case and said, you know, based on how we've done this in a way before, this is what we know we need to do to were sell you, this. Were you able to get any more money for advertising yes, the, yes. as well? We lifted the, the production budget from six hundred and some thousand dollars to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And that's by negotiating with all of the unions. All of the unions. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean the arrangements the Broadway Alliance have are that it's not a majority vote because everyone's taking a reduction. It has to be a unanimous vote. So Tory and I together worked very closely with the unions to try and satisfy everyone. Here the transaction was not saying, well, the producer wants more at the expense of labor or something. It was saying all of us together are not going to change the fundamental nature of what they've hammered out. What we want to do is take all of the additional money and put it into marketing. Mm -hmm. And really make the case for the play. I don't know that we w we could have done it on the original budget. It wasn't enough money right. to put the word out about the play, and that may or may not have been part of the problem with other alliance productions. But um, in this case, we needed more money. I mean, advertising is phenomenally expensive, um, and you want to have a visibility, um, and it costs money. Well, what's so great it. about what they've done, I think, is to prove in this team has proved that there was a formula that existed but that needed to be rethought then creatively reguided which has been done and proved that audiences really want to see this play and audiences uh, want to come to Broadway and see straight plays people have bemoaned, bemoaned the fate of plays on Broadway but what has already happened I mean just just now from the time that the show has been running is that it's been proven that people want to come and see the play and there is an issue of price that mm -hmm. has been addressed and people are happy at this ticket price. How large a house is it? How many seats? 970. How many? 972, I think. Mm -hmm. But now are you allowed to, in effect, to bank your good fortune in having a hit as Joe Papp, for example, for many years simply used the chorus line sure. as his endowment fund. Right. I mean, we aren't yet at a point where we're looking at profits or any lucrative <laughs> reward, but, but where, there is, where there is an upside, this is entirely produced as a not-for-profit venture, and all of the profit, if you will, from the What is a not-for-profit venture? Um, at City Center, our organizational budget's about $10 million to produce all of the plays. And of that, about six or six and change comes from ticket sales overall. And the balance has to be subsidized. So some three or four million dollars a year has to be raised. And one of the places it was raised for this production, which cost almost a million dollars, I think, in aggregate with the overhead and everything assigned before it got to Broadway. Um, was that AT&T stepped up early on and joined in this cause, which is a name we haven't mentioned. Um, a lot of funders w will step in, as Terrence was talking earlier about producers, and say, oh, this looks like a hit, maybe I'll get involved. AT&T did the same thing we did. They said, we'll sign on sight unseen. We'll commit to helping you with a substantial amount of marketing. But they also bought us an extra week of rehearsal that I know Terrence felt was very important, and, and stepped up and said, Okay, we're here too to support the play. Had they been your friend through the years, yes. so yes. that yes. they yes. just continued it? Right. But in this case, they really went a little further. Yeah. They, they mm -hmm. went out. They were supporting a writer whom we believed in, and as Barry said, they supported a play that they hadn't read. In the past, plays had been read and evaluated, and a determination was made as to whether there would be support. So this was quite an amazing step for. How does that? How does that differ from the Broadway producer? 
Broadway production, the, the Broadway producer, and who also is going into Broadway Alliance Theater. But how does he differ in his production team? From us? Can he get an AT&T, or does he have, have to rely have only on his back? You, 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 you asked us about what, what a nonprofit venture is. It means that if there are any proceeds, they will go back to support the Manhattan Theater Club and future work of the Manhattan Theater Club. They, they don't go back to an individual producer. We're a nonprofit organization, and our monies go to making the work that we do. Therefore, AT&T will never get its money back no, in that no. sense. Right, but AT&T supports the nonprofit mm -hmm. work. A, a, a purely commercial producer is not nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So they're and what about yeah, the design. creative end of it? Do you, does the creative end take cuts all the way through as well? There are two What's the difference in their guilds? Um, the Actors' Equity Association contracts agree to a minimum salary that's reduced by 25 percent mm -hmm. and a cap of $2,500 a week. Um, the Dramatist Guild royalties are reduced by a substantial amount, the director's royalties and the producer's royalties. But also, Tori, talk a little bit about all of the other unions. Uh, there's a combination of reductions on the part of the artistic unions and then the technical, the, the wide, as well as um, the APAM members, um, the press agent, the company manager, the technical unions all take um, their changes and variations in the work <coughs> rules. So there's a much greater, um, there, there's an economy of scale and people where often a position requires could require one or two two people to do the job. One person does the no, job. I mean, a we have the crew. The crew at the Walter Kerr. I mean, we have you know the carpenter, the prop, the wardrobe, the light board, and sound operator. I mean, they are all doing a tremendous job and working. I think exceedingly hard. I mean, it, the, and you have you are allowed to make changes in the work rule structure um, in the theater backstage. You also get support from the surrounding. Um, the ad agency takes. The, we were able to get the. We, we went to the ad agency. We went to to our agency, Gray, and we said, you know, this is an alliance production, and we're looking for a reduction on the commission. And mm -hmm. we were able. I mean, there's no one we haven't to whom we haven't said, um, this is an alliance production. What can uh, do, you do, do for us? Do the advertising us? rates um, go down? The advertising, yes. yeah, they do. The so the, the Times has. Reduce their rates in this particular. Does the New York Times, does the ABCs go down as well yes. for an alliance? Everything, everything, the print and the uh, it, it, I think it does. Some two hundred thousand dollars worth of advertising probably cost us about a hundred and ten or a hundred and twenty, yeah, maybe something. We got How many other plays uh, on Broadway are in your situation? Are you the only one at the moment? We are the um, only one that's up and opened. The Laurie Metcalf piece, which will go into the Martin Beck. Um, is either just started previews, previews think, or yeah. is about to start previews, and that will also be a Broadway Alliance show this year. Yeah, right. About the Broadway Alliance, uh, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, Joe and I are probably the only two people who are on royalty, and certainly friends have said to both of us, you know, if you'd done the play off-Broadway and it was selling out at the Promenade Theater, you'd be earning more money than you are on Broadway now. Why? Why would you make such a rash business decision for your own income? Uh, Joe and I both felt very strongly we wanted this play to be seen on Broadway. There's something exciting about being in those few blocks of Manhattan where there's 20 theaters lit up. These are beautiful theaters. As Brendan said, the Walter Kerr is one of the most beautiful <coughs> theaters in America. Most off-Broadway theaters were not built as theaters. They're mm -hmm. reconverted space. It's wonderful for the actors to have their own dressing rooms. I can use a bathroom midtown. I can cash, <laughs> I can cash a check that, midtown. When we, when we opened and in February, it was the 
first time in how long, Barry, that, that, that a new play hadn't been up? There was like a, there was a space yeah. of time. We were the only we had American play. January 1st, with the closing of both uh, Tuna Christmas and just before that, obviously, Angels in America, for the first time, I think, in the history of Broadway, there was no new play running. Inspector Calls was still running, of course, a great revival. No and there was and there was no American play on Broadway. Right. So as we began, it became important, I think, for everyone yes. involved, not only to be doing this play for us, but to be sort of relighting the candle. And, and that was another part of the whole marketing issue because people kept saying, "Why are you doing this in January? You can't do plays in January. You have to wait till April." And we all just, there was this momentum. We said, no, the moment is now to do this, and we will figure out. And that's part of why we needed the direct mail was, you know, had it, we, were, we were blessed, I think, in that it didn't snow very much. But, you know, we knew we had to get an audience in in February and March. The point I was trying to make, I didn't quite make it properly, is that unless people are committed to Broadway and doing plays there, it will go away as, as the most wonderful venues in this country in which to see our work performed. And Joe and I maybe are getting a reduced royalty, but we're getting a, a very good royalty, I think. I'm very happy. The play I wanted to write is being performed on Broadway as I wrote it, and I'm earning a living. And I, I don't think anyone working in the theater today should ask for anything more I, than that. I think what's very important so. is that it, it's a play not at a Broadway Alliance Theater. It's a play on Broadway. And that's the thing that's important, not to say, oh, it's very good for a Broadway Alliance Theater, which is one of the reasons I think other plays that were there before might have failed, too, because it, it was the Broadway Alliance that was being reviewed and not the play itself. And this is a play, and this is being made available for people to see at prices that are still high, but are, are still available to most people. And yet, Isabel, I think as you hear, without the kind of concert that has existed, the kind of oneness, it wouldn't be happening because the play couldn't, the, you're, you're hearing about economic issues and we're facing economic issues on Broadway that have daunted many people. Mm -hmm. So the artists in conjunction with the producers here are saying, let's, let's make this move. Let's, because the same issue is, is true for the producers. If the play were off Broadway, it would be a different economic structure than it is for us on Broadway. There is a kind of, there is a feeling about wanting to light these theaters and to have plays written. And if there aren't plays playing, new playwrights aren't going to write plays. So, so there's, what's very heartening to me is the kind of oneness of artists, producers, the, the entire team is very unified here. But now besides, besides all of us making more long distance phone calls, which we should do, I hadn't heard anything about American Talent Tell backing this. Now, what are they doing to get credit? I would think they would want credit for having la helped launch this well, thing. Are they, they taking any credit. ads themselves? They were, they were sponsors of the play Off-Broadway, right. um, and they made a substantial amount of advertising investment Off-Broadway. Well, for themselves, I mean. They put their, own horn. their logo in a very small way, um, despite an enormous way. contribution. I'm surprised yeah. at that. I certainly try to acknowledge them all I can. Uh, something we talked about earlier is this fourth week of rehearsal. I think with the death of the road, plays being tried out in Boston and Philly, et cetera, I think that's one reason the mortality rate for new plays has gotten so high. Mm -hmm. That fourth week of rehearsal, the, all the significant rewrites and changes 
in the text of Love, Valor, Compassion were made in that fourth week. It mm. takes three weeks for a playwright to get a sense of what the play's about, and usually the standard Broadway or com contract when actors work is after three weeks you go into full preview and full salary. Then you have, oh, I figured out what's wrong with the second act. No one wants to hear from the playwright because they're then worried about lights and sound and costumes. We just and upped our next so year's that, production budget. Oh, I said, <laughs> but, I said, but I say to Lynn and Barry, I think they will have the chance of having a more successful season with that extra week of rehearsal. It's the most significant difference. I think having a theater company is, is a, a, a wonderful luxury that, uh, that you can provide for your creative people so that they can experiment with it well, being, with it, get equity to it is not a permanent company of actors. No. This show was cast by Joe right. and Terrence and with Michael Bush's this um, is this fourth week of rehearsal is an issue I'd like to go to with say Joe to equity saying if you could find a way to agree to pay the actors rehearsal salary one week more the odds of the projects being successful and providing 52 weeks of employment are going to rise so significantly it's worth the gamble it's probably in the end a, more a cost issue than a union yeah. issue I mean when we're talking about four weeks of rehearsal just to help the audience that's four weeks before the whole tech process mm -hmm. begins so it's actually a little bit long it's really Three weeks now plus plus tech and pre. But you see, there is a, there is another element because you have functioned because Manhattan Theatre Club has functioned as such an entity and a nonprofit entity and a team. Uh, a, a thing that I think, uh, looking at it from the other side, from the union side, you are not a producer, an individual producer for profit. Uh, it is a nonprofit. I mean, it, it is there's, a, there's an element of trust here mm -hmm. uh, that I think. Uh, that you have built uh, sure. and credibility, and I don't know. I wonder. Uh, you, you said that the the uh, the new play that's coming in is is not is produced by producers. It's not a nonprofit entity coming in. Which but one? The friends, the right, yeah. Right. But, but which are a producing team. But there is a. I mean, but coming out of a nonprofit. In other words, if the unions are going to give something up, in a sense, they're going to be giving it back to right. an entity that is a nonprofit entity that's right. going to be doing more stuff for them. Sure. Rather but than I'd like to, home. I guess I'd like to say a word on behalf of narrowing the chasm between nonprofit and for-profit. That, that today the theater, you know, almost by definition, certainly for the play, is a not-for-profit venture. And some of the for-profit producers have been noble losers of great yeah. financial yes. resources in that cause. So, so I, I think uh, you're right that the, the unions have known us. We've been there for a long time. When we asked for some concessions, they trusted and respected us. But I think it's a mistake to go down a sort of bifurcated path at this point. The, the theater, given cutbacks at the National Endowment, the Department of Cultural Affairs and whatnot here in New York, um, needs all the friends it can get. Um, and, I think the question was, should AT&T or a corporation support uh, something well, that's a different issue, other than sure. a non-profit sure. venture? And, I, and that, to, in, in my mind, becomes yeah. a dicier issue. I mean, I think in the old days, uh, Columbia back my fair lady mm -hmm. I mean, they made millions and millions and millions right. of dollars but, this but that, was but that was an allied field that That's they right. were in really Certainly. it wasn't a Scott corporate field was that was coming something That's right. and, and I, I think the corporate world is taking up a great deal of the slack of, of coming in of the arts uh, and uh, endowment funds cuts the new commitment that disney is making to the broadway theaters it's certainly going to be a significant because that's going to change architecturally, that whole 42nd Street, the, the New Amsterdam, all now, those places. Now, let me go back to what happens to you now. Will you continue this path uh, from the, the city center and into Broadway? Will, will you look at plays and say, well, this is something that can be moved? 
the, like what it does for us for the first time really is gives us the capacity to say it has always been true that the play began from commission or commitment through readings and workshops to full production beginning with actually the Lisbon Traviata an earlier play of Terence's we began to produce the extended life of the work ourselves off-Broadway and we did that as well with um, Lips Together Teeth Apart and Perfect Ganesh. Now with this um, and a $750,000 capability to transfer a play to Broadway, I think yes, we would definitely look to more opportunities in the same fashion. At the same time I think it's important to say it takes an exceptional play like this even now, um, exceptional work, to make it under those economic circumstances. So we'll also continue to produce plays in open-ended runs off Broadway. Well, this is, doesn't this affect your, uh, your selection? And it, and it won't, because I, I know no, I mean, you, we've, but we've it's not sending, a danger. We've been sending plays to Broadway for many yeah. years now. Um, this is not the first time that we've been and represented on Broadway, between? nor that we have produced on Broadway. The difference with this is that it's under the Broadway Alliance. It's under a different economic structure. What's the percentage, roughly? between having doing it not under the Broadway Alliance and doing it at a Broadway theater? Probably With half. Half? Between 40 and 50 percent. We did, yeah. I mean, uh, we did a small, a small family, family business. business, which we produced ourselves um, through a for-profit subsidiary of the Manhattan Theater Club, was about a million five. And I, and I dare say this would have been from scratch Gosh. at least that. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the transfer cost was only about 750. But I think it's also important to say that at the same time this has gone on we've done four or five other plays at home this it's important spring, to say that indeed That's which where I was going. there's an equal commitment to that work I mean right. so it's to me it's the it's the wide range and this means we can do this when this is what should be done but at the same time there are plays happening in a hundred and fifty seat theater and in a rehearsal studio and that's where they want to be and that's that's another set of relationships mm -hmm. and it's those relationships that grow and develop and make a play like this possible. So with such a small group, uh, how in the world can you make your schedules? Or are you already thinking about easy money? There are a lot of people behind us. We've been us sleeping, too. but while, while one person talks, the other one naps. <laughs> <laughs> but are you already scheduling for 1997? No. Uh, how far? No. no. Um, should this go? Well, <laughs> 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 so I just wondered. It, 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 what happens if, if, this goes, if this goes to Boston or Chicago, Los Angeles? then what kind of an agreement do you work under there with those things? Well, we're beginning to look at that now. I mean, first of all, um, the Broadway Alliance provides for 10% of the profits of the show to be set aside for the unions that have taken reductions. Not all of them, mm -hmm. because some take other kinds of involvements. But So, so that happens in, in New York. Um, frankly, the road hadn't been fully looked at yet in terms of what happens next with the Broadway Alliance show. So certainly, full Broadway as possible, the equivalent of off-Broadway, but we've begun a dialogue now about that. I think what we want to do first is just get... You say the profits the go back to Manhattan Theatre Club. And what about the creative end of it? Is there any percentage that the yeah, director ten, and the playwright... Well, the, the director and playwright's royalties go up in, in uh, substantial ways after the play recoups, and then um, a piece of the profits uh, ten percent of the profits go to people that aren't on royalties as a set aside. We've worked the on the minimum. Mm -hmm. How long do you I think? I don't quite understand that, Barry. Sure. Say that again. Sure. Let me <laughs> <laughs> uh, royalties. People right. on royalties are on a re substantially reduced royalty until the play recoups its cost, right. and then those royalties go up as much as a hundred percent. 
the people that are on minimum salaries um, within the unions will share in a 10% profit pool of the play when the play's run is completed. In other words, each week the profits are escrowed for, for and, sharing. And do they and return any of their profits, do they return any of their commercial profits to the company, to Manhattan Theatre Club? I'm sorry. The, the individual the whole, no. 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 But are the subsidiary rights uh, over the few, next few years will be part of this profit pool? No, no. that's no. related to the production. How many weeks do you think it will take to recoup? We're in the what process do of doing it now. I don't know exactly when this airs, but I would hope that by the time it airs we can say that's completed. Mm. Well, it, let's say in general, what was the projection when you, uh, when you had to do the, if sure. you will, the math from deciding to go to Broadway, the projection of where you, when you would begin to recruit. Well, Did you make it? Very, depending on which of us you spoke to. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. All right, Tori. When did I'm, you say? I'm not being the most cautious, yeah. I suspect. So as a general manager, I, I, I figured by the end of June, Lynn has her own, <laughs> and and Barry was somewhere in the middle. We're very close, and certainly we had hoped that by the end of the theatrical season, yeah. we, we you take a football that. pool on Monday. Right. You know, Monday but it is companies was. like yours that, that uh, we're going to look for for the playwrights and the directors. But on the other hand, we, there has to be a way of feeding back, if you will. And we talked about this uh, on, about the National Theatre in, in, in England, for example, that when it goes commercial, then some of the, the profits of the playwright, the director, the various people, goes back to the National Theatre once it, once it travels, once it moves so that it, it's a continuous well, that's servicing. Already, that's already in effect, Isabel. When, I, when every play of my Manhattan Theater Club is done, fortunately it's been done in a lot of other theaters around the country, mm -hmm. I split my money 60-40 with the Manhattan Theater Club, what's called subsidiary rights. Money's earned by my plays outside of New York. It's not 50-50, I have the 60, they have the 40. But I've contributed, I mm -hmm. like to yes, think, a significant amount, mm -hmm. including, with, for example, where Frankie and Johnny was sold at a fairly good price to Hollywood, and 60-40 we share and the, that. And the Guild approves of that. I'm sorry? The Guild, the, your Guild approves of that. Well, yes, absolutely, and as a playwright, I am committed to sharing money I have earned uh, with, with a not-for-profit, especially a theater that's going to continue to develop me. So I don't think any playwright minds. You would also share 60-40 with interest. But uh, uh, also, I would share 60-40 on this play if David Merrick had produced it. That's why people produce plays, that mm -hmm. when you have a success, there is money down the road, productions you have nothing to do with. This play is being done tonight in Santa Barbara. Uh, Perfect Ganesh is running very happily in Santa Barbara. Right. We're sharing 60-40. The reason Santa Barbara is doing that play is because Manhattan Theatre Club did it so well a year and a half ago. So I have no problem in saying, yes, sir, the play wouldn't be there. And uh, uh, I think, Joe, I don't know what your money is, is different, no, because you don't have a franchise. He's being very no. quiet about it. No, well, he doesn't have a copyright. I saw that on your Joe, yes. I think it's a completely different arrangement. Yeah. Uh, I have a copyright in something called Love, Valor, Compassion. Yeah. Joe doesn't. He directed a production, which will be, if it's ever duplicated, Joe will share in the royalty. Being a director in America, a play director, is not the most lucrative thing. And we, are, we would be proud to be in the business of supporting directors as much as possible. In, we, in our discussion on the director-playwright, uh, part of it rested on the fact that there are only five or six 
directors, for example, that make a living in the theater. And uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult for them. And in, in the small theater companies, they're the last one there. They are the companies. I wonder how that many playwrights are that make a living in the theater. Just well, but you do have show. you do have a royalty. You do have that. Yeah, but a lot of my playwright friends. Does not have. We all know their names are teaching, doing other things, yeah. or, mm -hmm. or taking Artists, mo artists, taking artists, movie artists. assignments. They would maybe prefer not to because they found it hard to earn a living. Not many actors are earning, are earning a living in the theater either. Not many producers. No one's earning a living. I can think of playwrights that might be five, four or five that might be able to go it without maybe four. Terrence, does this big hit mean for you that you're going to have to use up more time? Will you be going around the country with these various openings or not? No. How can you dictate now your own life in terms of your wonderful degree well, of productivity. Because I promised them a play for the fall of uh, 96 and... Uh, we actually have to leave now. <laughs> and uh, I, I am... I, I, there's certain people really love working in the theater. Joe, he's a young director. I think uh, Joe is not secretly aspiring to become the world's greatest filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I think he is very happy working in the theater. That is becoming more and more extraordinary in this day and age as people think of the theater as kind of a way of getting into films mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think Joe I think Joe's in for the the duration and I mm -hmm. know I am mm -hmm. I think that your devotion to the theater too is so apparent I we're do. very lucky that it, that it is well it's so made me so happy and I've been you know I can't some, I still say you're this kid from Corpus Christi Texas <laughs> we have to take a deep breath in New now. York working with these great and, actors and and everybody has to just take a deep <laughs> breath think of all the things that we haven't said 56 year old we're man. going to say <laughs> in this next half that's left to us because we're going to stop for a minute and then come back again and, and talk more about love, valor, and compassion. That wonderful play. So everybody, stand up and come right back again and sit down. Um, how about love, valor, also compassion? Or, or. This is the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre, and we're continuing our discussion on the production. Uh, the production is Love, Valor, and Compassion, and it's the Manhattan Theatre Club's production, and it is now on Broadway, and we want to know how it all came about. We are continuing with the group led by Brendan Gill and George White, and they both will elicit who did what and when to bring this wonderful production to Broadway. Uh, starting with that, there's a little anecdote uh, that I, that came at the break, which uh, Terrence, you might say, or Lynn, about uh, that title again. Here we go. Back to the title of yeah. Love, Valor, Compassion. <laughs> right. Exclamation point, exclamation right. point. Mm. No, I was, uh, Terrence and I were reminiscing that he sat in my office, um, I guess it was in the, I can't remember how many months before, but he, had, he was uh, working on the play. And he said, I, I'd like to tell you the title of my new play. I said, great. And he very uncharacteristically took out a piece of paper. He didn't want to, he didn't say it. He wrote it. But he wrote Love, Compassion, Valor. So for a long time, I called it Love, Compassion, Valor. And it took me a while, finally, to... LCA, yes, right. to change it. But, but I thought it was interesting that he, he wrote it. He didn't, he didn't say it. I think Why was, did you change it then? He didn't change it. I think he just... Oh. No, I did change did it. I, yeah, oh, I, I, it was going to be Love, Compassion, Valor? Yeah, then I, then I think I did change it. But I, 
I, can, I guess I thought she would hate the title. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine it on the page as opposed to say, what? You know, Gary has a very good mnemonic for it. Yeah. One syllable, two syllable, three syllable. Oh, that's why. Oh. But, uh, that helps. I'd always prefer people see them so you don't get into things like the lesbian traviata. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and lips together, together oh, perfect Kanish. <laughs> we had a lot of legs apart, teeth together. <laughs> <laughs> the box office said the variations, most of which are triple X rated. Is this where such and such is playing? And they know it's lips together. Well, velour is the Love that's velour. not so bad. Right. I mean, if you had to do it, I mean, it's better than. If you'd written a play, it would be like a knife in your heart. <laughs> Even people have seen. I saw your play last night, and they say that love velour compassion. I just loved it. <laughs> I said you didn't look at your program very closely. <laughs> no, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> what was the name of your first play? And things that go bump in the night. Oh yeah. Which didn't get. No, that lost and a lot. It was mm -hmm. things that go bump in the night, and I'd say no, it's and things that go bump mm -hmm. in the night. Um, George. Bad habits seems like. No, that one, no. Yeah. Bad, bad habits. That's a really that's okay one. Yeah. aberration. Bad habits. People <laughs> remembered it, and next. That was pretty simple. <laughs> next. I, I wanted to also go, because we are talking about it, and again, it segues uh, into. Uh, I wanted to press you, Helene, a little bit more on your work, because we want, I want to talk about. It's easy to say a marketing plan, but I wanted to say, what is that? You know, and also going back to what I alluded to in the beginning, how did you decide? Who decides on the artwork? What happens there? Uh, you talked about gray advertising. I understand, but do you make that choice? Do you work with the director? Uh, do you work with uh, Lynn and Barry? Terry? How does that all? What is the process? Well, in this case. Um through the funding of AT&T, we worked with their ad agency, which was Serena Coin, and um, their artists. And parents, I think, sat down and thought about images of the play with Michael Bush, mm -hmm. right? And talked about it. And we, Michael and I, met with the ad agency artists who had read the play, and talked about images. And I remember sitting there, and the things that came up were um, moonlight was important to the play, and. Somehow, I think you had said the raft for some reason stuck in, in as an image that might work for something. Very Moonlight, water, and and a feeling that it was important that there be life, that there be um, some people. kind of affirmation of bodies or people, right? The first ad that was bought in had no people in it. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, this place about eight men. So an ad that is a picture of a lake, a pretty lake, it doesn't reflect what the place is about. Mm -hmm. Joe, I think you and I discussed it too. I think you saw that early. Yeah, yeah. design and, and, and you had some right. good input too. Uh, it's a feeling for the play. You try to convey to an artist because I do think that the choice of a logo for a show very is critical. very important. Yeah, it is very important. And and so we were presented with several logos and Terrence looked at them and Joe looked at them. We made some changes. I remember we wanted to open it up a little. I think it looked more like a swimming pool the first draft. Yes. <laughs> right? We made it look yeah. like a lake yeah. and added the trees. You One decided version. where to put your advertising and merchandising and promotion dollar. Well, um, but, well, let's, let's just go back a minute. We create we created the artwork, and then we needed to um, to figure out how we were going to sell the play. One thing that we did do um, that we do a lot at Manhattan Theater Club, but maybe is not so typical of, of Broadway um, on a whole, is we did a lot of research before we moved the play from City Center to Broadway. 
and we um, did exit polling at the theater, the sim very simplest, uh, quickest kind of research, to talk to people to say, you know, how, what do you think about the play and how would you describe it and are you going to recommend it to friends and, and how would you describe it? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Great minds. How do you describe it? We found as people were leaving the theater that they were talking at that point about friendship and love were the two, were the, really the two sentiments that were expressed over and over again. But they thought it was a play about friendship. And, um, and that was kind of interesting to us. And we had overall very positive feedback from people, which was, was very encouraging. We then brought in, I think we did three or four, I can't remember now, focus groups where you bring single ticket buyers in to a, a special kind of focus group research room. They sit be in a, a conference table behind a one-way mirror and a, a moderator asks them questions. Um, um, to find out really what they're thinking. And it was interesting. We did a, a group of people who didn't like the play. We wanted to find out why they didn't like it. And we did a group of people who really liked it. And there was another group that I don't remember. Single ticket buyers who had uh, heard about the play but hadn't oh, yet well, hadn't seen, seen it. it yet. And what and had they heard? Because we thought the perceptions that on the street oh, sort of in so It was really, it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I remember the, the couple of things that we learned were people who didn't like it a good percentage of them were really offended by the nudity. And they couldn't seem to get past that. It was this, all these naked men. I think there were only like three in that group, right. and the right. other groups were very, very <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, The true. people, it is true, the people who liked the play, one man I remember saying, oh, you know, now that you mentioned it, I guess they were nude, but I don't but really, no it was so weird. We, we said they, they didn't, the nudity wasn't a big deal to them because it, it flowed with the play. It, it didn't seem like such a big deal. And I thought that was, are you, that was particularly interesting. Are you doing any television or radio spots? You're putting it all into media. We did radio. We've done radio and we're radio. doing radio now. Not television. television is not in our budget. Mm -hmm. It's really very It's a budgetary uh, yes. constraint, yeah. not a... Not a Absolutely. We would do it if we could afford it. the Broadway Alliance, right. how much we can spend. Yeah. Yeah. We've done significant amounts of direct mail, which not only is successful for um, subscriptions... Where do you get your list from? That's really a, a consortium effort of the, the team. Part of it was Broadway single ticket buyers from shows mm -hmm. um, that have been involved before. As Helene was saying earlier, a lot of MTCs, because we're here for the long haul, we go to um, uh, great lengths to collect the names of every ticket buyer that comes to you know, all of mm -hmm. Terrence's prior shows. Um, we have an enormous database, and, and actually most Broadway shows now, when they open a play and do direct mail, come to us for our, for our names. You're much more conspiratorial than I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I promise. I'm, I'm feeling I don't know Joe knew, now. Joe knew anything about oh. these one-way windows and exit poles. It's terrifying. To <laughs> yeah. There are no rubber hoses. I, mean, I, mean, I think what's important about it, oh. is, which is why it's not terrifying, is that to market a commercial product, you listen to focus groups like this to change the product. We do exactly the opposite. We listen to focus groups like this to find the right audience okay. to meet the play. Who had this idea? Is this a new idea? Is something we've been doing, doing for a long time? We do it um, for, for our single ticket buyers and subscribers and for set special projects. We've we were been doing it for years. There actually by someone on our board. Right. And we have a tremendous board with, you know, who, who point us to, to and uh, uh, on our board, Chris Miller, who, who's on our board and had done a lot, does marketing in her professional life, said, you guys aren't doing focus groups like five or six years ago, and we started doing focus groups. She you stood up at a board meeting. It was after the first focus group, and I had the same reaction, Terrence, you and John, when I heard about these. And she stood up at a board meeting, and she said, well, the good news is 
that the people like the product. What about the single ticket buyers? What if they don't? Are we going to have to start producing toilet paper? (laughs) (laughs) The people don't like the product. It's very, very helpful information, though. It really taught us how to talk about the play. Um, what are the best ways to, to describe it? What what might not work? What might not be a best? Now, do you use Barry that? Describes this very well, though, in saying because I, I really did feel fearful. I thought, wait a minute, now we're suddenly going to try to tailor our product to what people are saying, and, and with his usual <laughs> wisdom, he, he he calmed me down and said, no, this is about trying to understand who would like to see the work mm-hmm. that we're doing and getting to that audience. And I think right. we built on that and mm-hmm. have been building audiences and. It's also just about how to use the right language to communicate about art, which is a very complicated subject. I'll give you one example that's not directly about this. In our small, smaller stage two play space at City Center, originally we talked about work as experimental, and that was off-putting to an audience. It was scary. They didn't understand it. When we changed that word to risk-taking, they understood it and embraced it, or adventurous. So it's really a matter of figuring out how to do our job well in service of the art. Yeah, well, you know, well, I would, one quick other question about, you said they were also the, the single ticket buyer that had not seen the right. play. What did you get then? That was, that was kind well, of interesting. Well, it was very interesting. I mean, um, some people said it was on their list and they wanted to see it. Most people knew Terrence and said, oh, the, you know, that's the McNally play and I want to see that. They didn't know, you know, if they didn't know what the play was, they seemed to know your name much more. Um, Quotes we tested quotes. We tested prices. One of the interesting things we tested were some ads that had bannered over the ad because we are an alliance production. People said make sure they know the prices. So we bannered like all tickets uh, $45 and then we tried one all tickets only $45 and then we tried one without anything. And it was we thought that they would be price sensitive because what we were hearing from them was prices is most definitely an issue. What did pull? They hated the ads <laughs> with the prices and they felt that it it demeaned the play that it seemed like it was a fire sale that this was With a damaged goods right and mm-hmm. it was an interesting uh, price mattered to them but they wanted first and foremost to focus right. on the yeah. right quality. so we ended up putting the, the price in the ads because our lowest price is fifteen dollars mm-hmm. but we we put it down on the bottom you know very do you have a, a scale <laughs> What is, what is the lowest price? Yeah. The, the lowest price is $15. What we did is the price is primarily $45. Tickets are scaled in the mezzanine, and then at the cur there is a balcony, and the balcony seats, this is something that was also done on Angels, um, are available for $15 as a way to open up the market to people who can, who can spend, who really can only spend the $15. Do you, do you not promote that really? We chose to uh, we chose to promote it. We went back and forth on whether that was a day of thing or we would do it ahead mm-hmm. of time, and we made the choice to do it ahead of time. Um, I would I would think where the only forty five dollars might be oh the fire sale, but available at fifteen dollars is quite mm-hmm. different. And and I, I I keep being asked if there was only a price that I could afford. And right. and, and, and uh, well, so the second balcony of these fifteen dollar and twenty dollar on the weekend seats sell out on a regular basis. Yes. I thought the poster should say the cheapest play on Broadway. <laughs> 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 but I would have thought it'd been a great selling point. I'm amazed. I'm learning a lot today by <laughs> by just sitting here listening to them. I would have thought. I always wonder why our ad didn't say. You think you want to be a producer now instead <laughs> no. of a playwright? No. <laughs> but also, I must say, a lot of the stuff Joe and I did in the rehearsal room because they do leave us alone. 
you don't know why we did a lot of stuff. You know, then you see the show, and now we get to see how you're producing it. But this has been very informative for me. I don't know you, Joe. I'm glad of that. Do you have a student price? Do you have a student ticket price? We don't have a specific student ticket price. The $15 is promoted a lot, and we've promoted that. One question about your board. How big is your board, and are they partly professional? They're mostly professional. It's a terrific group. We haven't really talked about that. But 25 people? 40 people now. Terrence is a member of the board. Michael Coles is the chairman, is the retired. Uh, partner of Goldman Sachs who ran their international division. Um, it's a distinguished group of men and women who not only provide an enormous amount of financial resource to the institution, we couldn't do it without them, but also, as Tori indicated earlier, a number of working committees assist with extraordinary leadership and professional guidance in a, in a mm -hmm. host of business capacities. I didn't go to business school. I went to school and studied as, a, 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 as an artist um, myself, and um, including with Mr. White over here. And so for me, it's been an extraordinary graduate education in business. They are a great resource. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of questions, and I'm going to start right now with the first one. Hi, um, my name is Will Garcher, and I'm an actor. My question's for Mr. McNally. Um, in your earlier works, the, the gay themes and the gay characters have been central to the work, but they've stayed off stage a lot of the time, like in Lips Together and Teeth Apart. What made you feel that now you wanted to put them front and center and really let them speak this time around? Well, one, I would question the validity of your question. Uh, yeah. Things that go bump in the night, my first play, two of the four, five characters are gay. Uh -huh. So okay. I really, it's not, at Lisbon Traviata, they're all gay. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's been in and out. It's, it's, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Judy Rabichev, JR Public Relations. Um, this is too barrier, Tori. Um, if, um, I know a lot of your tickets are low priced, but did you take into account originally, I'm sure you had a break-even point, did you take in, into account that you might have to uh, maybe uh, send tickets over to Tickets Booth? I mean, was that part of your uh, projection uh, that some of the seats might have to be uh, filled that way? I would, yeah, go ahead. And do I you? I don't think, ex I, mean, what you, I mean, we did kind of classic break-even models of how many full-price tickets we needed to sell, and I think what we looked at beyond that was really much more about the discount mail and, and how much we would do in volume in the mail. I think we always knew that, you know, we, were, we, we looked through the months, and uh, so I don't think we really took the booth into account. I mean, I think we really were focused on one of the things that the Alliance does is, is $45, while it's out of people's reach, $45 is significantly less expensive than most Broadway entertainment is. And so we really built the model, I think, in that sense on how many full-price tickets and, and what percentage return we were going to get in the direct mail, which is a discounted ticket. And do, you do, like do you send any tickets to TDF now? Yes. Um, what percentage? Uh, I don't know. It's a relatively it's, it's a small, small it's a relatively percent. small mm -hmm. percentage. We did a lot. Of, we did do TDF mailing through right. TDF from the beginning. I mean, we TDF supported this production as well, and that was very important actually in building our Sunday night audience. And we really used TDF for that. The other thing I would say just is that we really tried to figure out how many tickets would come from single ticket right. buyers, how many tickets would come from the mail, how many tickets would come from people that had already heard about the play at City Center and build it kind of like layers on a wedding cake rather than simply say, okay, we've got great reviews, let's just take an ad and see what happens. 
Hi, I'm Lawrence Applebaum. I'm a painter-writer. I thought the play was like a living, breathing David Hockney-ish, um, very beautiful. And I was wondering, since the designers aren't here, what were some of the transitions from Manhattan Theater Club to Broadway? Joe, there you go. In, in terms of the design? Yeah, the set, the swimming pool. Or uh, it's actually relatively the same, the only difference being um, all of the, uh, the, the, the vertical space, obviously, that we have at the Walter Kerr. Um, <coughs> But uh, uh, but it may be something interesting just to go back to what you're saying about David Hockney, which I think is true, but um, was so, sort of a happy accident because it was not um, uh, it was not part of the original design of the play, uh, and uh, we were teching the play, and it wasn't and the set wasn't quite working yet; it hadn't all gelled, and we were about two or three days into it, and. It, just very frustrating because the the look hadn't happened yet, and something and uh, the lighting designer lit uh, Randy on the raft, and all of a sudden I thought, oh my god, that looks like David Hockney, and I walked across the theater to the set designer, and he had the same image, and so then from that point on, for the rest of the tech, we sort of um, started to find it in in terms of thinking of it uh, like a Hockney painting, and and even pitching the clothes and. And, and a lot of look towards that kind of thing instead. Because that green mound, you know, over the place wasn't quite working at first, and we couldn't figure out a way to kind of get it up there. So, Who chooses the designer? Well, I, I mean, uh, we've all... It's, a, it's a, a decision that's made by the artistic staff of MTC mm -hmm. in conjunction with the director and the playwright. And in this case, Michael Bush, who I mentioned before, and is absent today. Was working with it on paper and then go to take for how long? Before one to the other. I don't know. We've been working together for such a long time. Like, like you said, we had a shorthand. I mean, we just talk about the play. We had maybe, you know, for for a relatively simple set, we had probably had about twelve to fifteen meetings about it. You know, and it, 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 it advances from just you know just talking about the play to. Um, seeing a white model, a painted model. It's more a, a discussion on this and, and with all of you. you no, well, it's private and then a presentation then is made presented. in enough time to have input from staff of MDC, in this case Barry, Does worked over the summer on this. Yeah, budget definitely comes into it, but beyond that I think um, th there is this sort of ongoing dialogue. Michael Moody, who is our production manager, is the other person who's very important in trying to to budget with Tori early on how to realize the designer's vision. Michael Bush and I spent a lot of time actually back and forth with Joe and, and Loy over the summer trying to make sure we were all happy before we went forward because where budget really comes into play is if you get it wrong and you get into the theater and you have to start making a lot of changes. And I have to say here Joe had a really clear vision with Loy of that collaboration so we didn't have to throw a lot of stuff out once we got well, started. Well, it's interesting, though, about the carpet, because remember, it wasn't working, and we went back and forth. I remember, Michael, we came up with you, and we decided we wouldn't throw it away yet. Let's wait and see where it goes. You were very clear about, let's wait and see. It's it's okay. And then you had that it was moment. almost the big blue mountain. My question is directed to Mr. Mantello and uh, Mr. McNally. As an actress, I would like to know just how much the how many changes and how much the text changed during rehearsal and how much was Mr. Mantello's role? Uh, I'm a writer who does uh, a lot of rewriting in rehearsal. I like to sit quietly 
in the corner and listen to the actors and sort of get re-inspired, shape things. Uh, this play, the rewrites were more structural than whole new scenes. Uh, but I certainly am very involved up until opening night with making sometimes very minute changes. Uh, and I enjoy rewriting. I've learned to enjoy it. You have to if you're going <laughs> to do this for 35 years. Uh, Joe uh, and actors, a good director and good actors are always part of the rewriting process. Uh, we, we don't improvise scenes. We don't, I don't know how to put it. Um, we speak the same language. When you have the right cast, and this play was blessed from day one with the absolutely seven right actors to do this play, and the right director, it's not an issue. People are always saying to me, do they make you rewrite anything? No, <laughs> you want to re rewrite something because you're all, you're seeing where a scene is too long. You're seeing where a scene is underwritten. Uh, we made an enormous cut in the play of a seven-minute scene the night before the press came. And uh, it wasn't at the play. It was a, it's a three-hour play. It's never going to be a two-hour play. Uh, we knew it was long. Joe asked me to try cutting the seven-minute scene. I thought, well, I, all right, I'll try it. By that point, I trusted Joe enormously. I knew it would upset the actors involved, and it did. But there was no question the play worked better without this scene. But that came out of trust. If I did not trust Joe, I want, because I would not have occurred to me why the play seemed long uh, was not because it was ending at 11.10. It was because a point had been established at 10.40, and then it was reestablished at 11.10. And mm -hmm. Joe said, let's not establish it at 10.40. And I wouldn't have figured that out. And I trusted him enough to try it. I also knew if it really had not worked, we would have put it back. The actors would have been upset for 24 hours. As it turned out, they were upset for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but let's pick, I, I wanted to pick up I on want that. Joe to, I want uh, Joe to. Yeah, Joe, you want to put, and I also wanted to bring up about the business. Was it your idea to have John Glover's character or, or, or be the same person? No. That was always Entirely. the same. Because oh, yeah. yeah, okay. Otherwise, then I'm limited to finding a pair of identical twins. Well, that would oh, really yeah. make it casting very hard. The Fox Brothers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, no, no, that was. I, we that have another was, question. Uh, always there. Hi, my name is Margot Evan. I'm an actress, and I want to thank the panel for their precious time today. I would like to know how much do the producers actually still get involved in the creative process? What do you mean still? <laughs> <laughs> You mean now as the show is running or in the, in the, in the stages of it, oh. in the beginning stages and following through? I think, um, you know, we work as we've always worked, which is um, we're, we're there in the, in the beginning, um, making key selections of plays, of people who are going to work on the plays and how the play is cast and how the play is designed. And then there's, once those decisions have been made, there's a period of time in which we leave the artists alone to work, um, and and then we come in. the The artistic staff and and the staff of the theater comes in at a certain point when then there's something to look at, and then we try to help make movement go forward. But I'm a great believer in making uh, important decisions early on, and then letting things go, and then coming in later when there's something to look at, and not interfering in the middle, which is a very you know, it's sort of uh, like trying to, it's a gestation time, and you can't pull the baby out and <laughs> take a look at it to make sure that it's growing okay. You wait until there's something 
to, uh, to be looked at and then talk about what the next steps are. So that's basically our artistic Do you have uh, script readings? Do people submit scripts to you? And yes. How do you handle that? Yes, we read, um, we read with our own eyes a lot of scripts, and we also hear plays out loud. We actually we heard uh, uh, Love, Valor, Compassion two times out loud um, for you know kind of small, um, invited group of people. Um, and then we hear many plays that we do, that we're considering doing, or plays that we have con we've already committed to doing. We'll listen to to determine how we want to work on the play. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here, and, and I want to thank Manhattan Theatre Club for love, valor, compassion, and lots of love. You, you've you. given us a wonderful time, and I hope that you will bring many more things from the Manhattan Theatre Club. To Broadway. And this is just one more of the American Theatre Wing's year-round services. We bring you these seminars in order to have you get an insight into what it is to work in the theatre. I'm very pleased to have been able, as president of the American Theatre Wing, to bring the people here together. Thank you very much, and thank you all for being here.